Old Testament scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 61. I'll ask you to please turn to Isaiah 61. It's 1 through 4. And then uh, Romans 3, 19 through 26. This is the word of God. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint, a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up from the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, re- to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness because in, the divine, his, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who he has, who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you again as we come before your word. We do so, Lord, with all reverence, with all dependence upon you, Lord. And as we approach a text like this, who could do justice to this text? Who could preach it, Lord, in a way that's honoring to you? pray, Lord, that only by your spirit that you would give us the grace to do just that. So, Lord, I thank you and praise you for your precious word and ask, Lord God, your blessing upon it, that you would give us ears to hear it, Lord, that you would illuminate your word by your spirit, that we may be edified, that we may be strengthened in our faith, that we may be encouraged in those areas of our life where we need encouragement and convicted in those areas where we need conviction as well all to the praise, honor, and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen and praise God. Okay, we are moving forward or moving on in the book of Romans. Uh, yeah, we're turning the corner. Um, up to this point, as you know, if you've, been, if you've been with us, Paul has been making the biblical case just regarding And I know it's been difficult, and it has to be difficult. It should be difficult. It should be tough when we're talking about sin. 
And we don't like to, to dwell on that so much. Okay, I know I'm a sinner. All right, how much more are you going to pour on me? But Paul just kept pouring it on to make the point. To talk about just the nature of sin and, and what we're up against and who we are, the depth, the reality of sin, the sinfulness of sin. That's what Paul has been doing. And he's leaving no way out. There's no escape for us. We can't go to our works. We can't go to our heritage. We can't go to anything else that we think might deliver us from our sin. It's only Christ. So we're, we're kind of cornered in. Now, if he was to stop right here, if he was to end, if he said, okay, we're all sinners, we're all doomed, we all deserve hell, see you later, that would be hard, wouldn't it? But praise God he doesn't do that. It's a lot of bad news, in a sense, as it talks about our sin, but praise be to God that he doesn't end here. Amen? That's a good thing. He goes on. The passages that I just read, especially um, uh, 21 through 24, are really the heart of this this letter. It just is. These are the transformational passages. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, for Luther, those of you in the history class, you know this, these, this section of scripture was just transformed his entire life. His entire mindset, his entire outlook towards God and towards salvation. Because you know, Luther... He was devout, and he really wanted to be saved, and he really wanted to be right before God. He did. But you know what he tried to do? He tried to do it himself. He tried to work it out himself. He said, I am going to be the best monk that I could be. I'm going to do everything that I can so that I will be righteous in the sight of God, and I'll be accepted by him. So you know the stories. You've heard the stories, hopefully, about Luther, how he would beat himself. He would beat his body. He would lay on the cold ground in the middle of winter, just prostrate for hours and hours. He would go to confession like three or four times a day until his confessor said, Martin, don't come anymore. You're coming too much. But as soon as he left, he knew that he was sinning and he had to go back and confess again. And on and on and on it went. He was devout. He took the the pilgrimage to Rome, going up the steps, praying, 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 getting to the top of the steps and says, is this it? He knew there was an emptiness there. But when he came here, when the Lord brought him to this passage and opened up his eyes, it changed everything for him in terms of salvation, in terms of how you get right with God and being accepted by God. This is justification by grace. So Luther said regarding this passage or these passages in Scripture that these are the most important passages in all of Scripture. Now, certainly they probably were to him, and it's debatable if they are, but they're right up there, that's for sure, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this passage, of these passages, it's the center of the entire Bible. It's that important. Really, the rest of the letter to the Romans is about justification and then the implications of our justification, how we get right with God, and then what does that look like in our lives until he calls us home. It is so important because this is about how you get to heaven. When we talk about our righteousness and justification before God, that's why it's such an important doctrine. We're going to take a few weeks in here. I feel like today's sermon is just going to be like one long introduction, so I do kind of apologize in advance for that. Hopefully there'll be something you can take out of it. But uh, next time we're really going to get into the, the, the heart of justification. But nevertheless, this is, this is how you get into heaven. That's why it's so important. This is what Jesus Life and his death actually does for you when you believe. Oh, I believe that Jesus died. But what did Jesus' death do on that cross for us? How, how did that make us get into heaven? This explains that. That's why it's so important. That's why you need to know it as a Christian. Because you will come to appreciate and love your God in a deeper way. More than you can imagine how grateful you'll be for the grace that you've received. 
right? And the understanding of what he has done in us. This is how a, a, a wretched sinner, wretched sinners like us, with no claim to the throne, no claim to God, are accepted before God. How we are counted as righteous and seen as precious in his sight, man. That's amazing. This is how. So, what I want to do this morning is just give a few big ideas regarding justification from the text. And uh, we'll just start in right away with the reality of it. It is a real thing. It's a real doctrine. It's important that you need to know. The reality of justification. And he says, but now in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We'll stop right there. First thing, it just when it appears, just when it seems like all hope is lost, after you read the first three and a half chapters, when you're doomed and there's no hope, just when everything seems lost, you Paul turns it around and he says in verse 21, but now, but now, that little conjunction, and you know this, that but means so much, that little, everything turns on that. We go from gloom and doom to hope and salvation, from not being accepted by God, nothing we could do, not worthy, to being the beloved of God. Because of what Christ has done. So he says, but now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Amen. That is good news. It's saying, look, you don't have to keep the law. You don't have to keep the law that you thought you had to keep, that you never could keep in the first place. And that's kind of Paul's point, a major point in the first three chapters of this of this book. Gaining salvation is not something that you do. It's not something that we do. It's something that God has already done for us. Amen? Praise God. That's a big deal for us. And we cannot be reminded enough of that because even in the Christian church, even in the evangelical church, there's still kind of a tendency towards works and what I have to do, or at least to keep my salvation going. No, he has done it all for us. It's not gained through something that you do. Not something in you that's attractive to God in any way, shape, or form. It's all of grace. Amen? Praise God. You need to be glad for that. It's not about the family you were born into. It's not about the tribe that you belong to. Apart from the law means apart from you. Because what it says apart from the law, that, what's that mean? We see the law. We try to obey it. We try to keep it. We do the best that we can. But it says, no, 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 no. Apart from the law means apart from you. It's beyond you. Our salvation, get that down. It's beyond you. It's outside of you. I like the NIV because it renders it, uh, for this verse, or verse 21, in the ESV it says, but now the righteousness of God is manifested. NIV, I think, captures the essence more. It's it's closer um, because it, it reads a righteousness from God. So the righteousness of God but the righteousness from God, it is from him. It's alien to us. It's foreign from us. That righteousness that you need in order to be accepted by God actually comes from God himself. How gracious is that? He gives us the righteousness that we need. This is sheer grace. That's what we've been singing about all morning in our songs. Sheer grace. Your righteous status and your acceptance before a holy God has nothing to do with you. You understand? Say amen. Praise God. That's right. Listen, only a truly converted person can say that and really mean it. You know, like, my salvation has nothing to do with me. You talk to people that make a profession of faith or, you know, they don't really know the Lord. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God and I trust in him. but, But there's always a little bit of something that's left for them to do. Right? I think only those that are truly converted can say that it has nothing to do with me whatsoever. 
and really mean it. Now, if you're offended by that, check your heart. Examine your heart in terms of your relationship to the Lord because there's nothing you do. It's all of grace. It's all of God all the time. Praise God and amen for that. It doesn't depend on us. That's number one. That's just that's that righteousness. Number two, you also need to know this, that this is nothing new. To be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, to be righteous, to be justified before God, that's not a New Testament concept, man. It's not something that just he pulled out in the New. Oh, in the Old Testament, it was a different way. In the New Testament, now it's this way. No, no, no. It's always been this way. It's always been salvation by grace. That might be hard to think when you're reading the Old Testament, God's commandments, do this and live here, hold to this law, go on, so on and so forth. But don't be confused by that. Salvation has always been by grace. And we talked about the law and how that shows us how far short we fall of that grace and that we need him. It's always been this way. When he talks about here, when Paul says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what's he saying? He's saying the whole Testament, all of Scripture bears witness to it. So law and the prophets simply means the Old Testament itself. They can never attain righteousness through the law. It wasn't one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. That's why we need all of Scripture, because it teaches us consistently, coherently throughout what God has done for us. It's, all, it's always been by grace. Because I know a lot of people mistake, they say the Old Testament, that's when they worked for it back then. Now we rest in grace. No, it's always been by grace. Was Abraham looking for God when God called him? We're going to talk a lot more about him next week. No. Were Adam and Eve looking for God when he called them, when he pursued them? No, they were actually hiding from him. Was Moses, did Moses come up with the idea, well, I'm going to do the ark and I'm going to proclaim myself righteous? No, it's God who set him apart. God has sought these and every saved sinner since then. Amen? It's not us. It's all of him. We can never attain that righteousness. The, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the feasts, the rituals in the Old Testament, they pointed to something beyond themselves. They pointed and looked forward to Jesus Christ who would fulfill this. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. So why don't we turn very quickly to Hebrews chapter 10 just to confirm that fact. It's just not from Pastor Joe's mind or you wouldn't want that. <laughs> You want the word of God all the time. So these things always pointed to the grace of God. So in Hebrews chapter 10, again, familiar passages to us. Beginning in verse 1 and through verse 4, the writer says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have to be, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But these sacrifices there, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Then he goes on to talk about Christ. You see that? That's it, man. That, that, that could have done it. If that would have made them right before God, then they would have been cleansed. They wouldn't need it no more. Year after year, even day after day, that blood shed, constant reminder, constant reminder of that blood needing to be shed. Our sins needed to be covered in order to come before God in grace. That's what it was pointing to. And it would drive people to Christ. So that's what he says there. So that's it. 
Righteousness has always been beyond us because it's never in us. We've never been righteous. We can't attain that righteousness. That's what's so wonderful about the gospel. That's so wonderful about being a Christian because every other form of religion, every other way, there's something that you do. And we kind of like that because we like to kind of be in charge. We kind of like to be a, do a little bit of something, right? Here, Christian, it's, we're completely humbled. We're completely humbled before the grace of God. There's nothing I can do. He's done it all. You can't get there apart from the Holy Spirit changing your heart and having you acknowledge that. We just can't do it. There's too much sin, too much pride in our hearts to get to that place on our own. So righteousness or justification is not something we can attain on our own. We're not going to make ourselves good enough no matter how hard we try. This isn't a new concept. It's not a new way. It's always been part of his purpose and part of his plan. Now, number three, the question becomes, how do I get this righteousness? How am I justified in his sight? Then how am I going to be right in God's sight? If I can't do it, man, if I can't work hard enough, if I can't be, you know, do a better job and, and kind of get there, how do I get this? Well, Paul goes on to give us, listen to this, the means or the instrument of our justification, how, how it's obtained, and that's simply through faith, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at this. Paul, again, this is like one big introduction. You could probably tell, but... Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then down in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this continues on in verse 26, as he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Faith, faith, faith. That is the instrument. That is, that is the, the means of how we obtain this righteousness, by believing. Now, here's the trick, and here's the thing, and here's why I want you to listen, to pay attention to this, because even when it comes to faith, you need to be extremely careful. Because we can kind of turn that faith into a work if we're not careful. There's just a constant tendency to do it ourselves, to do it a little bit here so that God will be pleased with me. You have to come to a complete end of yourself and realize that it's Christ alone. Amen? Praise God. Because even our faith can become a work. We're told that we're saved by or through faith and not because of faith. That's a huge distinction that needs to be made. So it's not, and like I've seen so many people, it's not, hey, I have faith. Look at me, God. Check out my faith. Now, aren't you going to look? Because here's what I'm doing. No, it's not I have faith as, as so many. I know that you know so many people who say that they believe in Jesus, right? People that you've grown up with, even in the church, friends outside the church, that, hey, of course I believe in Jesus. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he died for sins. I believe that he was raised on the third day. You can assent to the facts and, 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 and you know, acknowledge those facts. Now, this is all the stuff that I learned in Sunday school, of course. Right? I've decided to follow him. I do believe in him. So there's a, there's a measure of kind of a, a faith that we give to the Lord. But you know what? That's just kind of a wink and a nod. It's not true 
saving faith that turns you inside out and brings you to the Lord and brings you to your knees before Christ. It's a faith that says, yeah, I, I believe here. Look at, look at me, Lord. I, I believe in all the facts, but I'm not truly trusting in you. And there's a big distinction there. And I know that you know people in your lives that you maybe have grown up with and said, I believe in Jesus. Of course I do. But there's no real evidence in their lives that they believe in Christ. There's nothing in their life that says, yes, I truly believe. Yes, I'm truly trusting in him. Their faith is like somehow secondary to the rest of their life, right? A lot of these people that say, well, I do have faith. I do believe in that. So what, man? The devils believe and they shudder. They know the facts. It's more than that. When you try to say, yeah, I do have faith and I mustered up, that's kind of a, forms of a form of works that God may look upon you. But you see those people, well, I have faith, but their faith means very little to them in real life, doesn't it? They're not really interested in the word. They're not interested in seeking God in prayer, looking and leaning on the Holy Spirit to lead God and direct them. You know, Christ is kind of secondary to their life, kind of something that fits in when they need him to fit in. That's not faith. That's not going to get you anywhere. That might get you cuts on the line of the way to hell, but it's not going to get you to heaven, man. But that's a kind of faith that is out there, and it's it's far too prevalent and prominent. Listen, man, do not necessarily count on the profession made around the campfire Christian summer camp. How many do we know that made those professions of faith, they get excited, they get caught up in the moment, and then a few years later, they're gone. You know, there's, there's, there's really no faith there at all. Or the very emotional experience, you can get caught up in the moment and say, yeah, I believe. And then you'll kind of put, put that faith in the Lord in that way. I remember in the 90s going to a Billy, Billy Graham crusade in Pittsburgh. And it's very emotional there. It's very, I mean, you know, it's, I don't want to be too hard on Billy Graham. And, and, and people were truly converted there. But there were a lot of people, and I know people, I know people in my own family that got caught up in the emotion. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I believe, and I believe. And, and, and then, you know, three weeks later, you're just your same old self again. That's that, that, that kind of faith that doesn't save. And it's almost like, well, yeah, I believe in the facts. God should, you know, he should look on me and, and be okay with me. Don't mistake saving faith for like a, a mental assent to the facts or truths of Christianity. That faith does not save. Don't rely on the fact that your granddaddy was a preacher and your parents are believers and you were raised in the church. There are a lot of people that do that. You can't catch faith. It's not something that we could pass on the faith by praying, by preaching, of course, evangelizing our kids. Absolutely. But they're not going to catch it by being around. How many times do you hear people, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe. Yeah, my granddaddy was a preacher. My uncle's a deacon. My parents believe. I know the catechisms, all that kind of stuff. So what? That doesn't mean anything in the end. You don't catch it. It's not as if God looks at you, and this is really important. It's not as if God looks at you to see whether or not you have faith. It's not like he looks and says, okay, Bill, you have faith. You have faith, and you have faith. And then based on that, decides what he's going to do with you. Oh, you have faith? Great, Donna. You're in because you have faith. It doesn't work like that, right? It's not a word, but we can mistake that. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Right? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is through faith. It is through faith. Huh? Faith is not a work. Now I want you listen, faith is not a work by which you get into heaven. It's the instrument by which you gain a righteous status 
that get you into heaven. You understand? I'm going to say that again. It's not, faith is not a work by which you get to heaven. It's the instrument by which you gain the righteous status that gets you into heaven. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that next time, obviously, as we get into uh, deeper passages. It's not that. And why do I say that? It's not that work. Why isn't faith a work? Why is it the instrument? Because faith itself is a gift. And that's a big mistake people make all the time. They think they need to muster up the faith, just like we do in the real world. Like, oh, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to have enough of faith. I know I could do this. I know that I can master that mountain. I, you know, I could climb, I could do this. I just have faith in myself. I just have to believe. I, you know, so you kind of muster up that faith. And we mistake that for true, authentic state, saving faith. That faith doesn't save. Faith itself, the faith was what you believe in God, the faith that, that, that enables you to put your trust in Christ so that you may st- benefit from the, the, the work of Christ in your life and makes you stand before God is a gift itself. Do you understand? This is sheer grace. You've got to get rid of the mind. Nothing you can do. We always want to hold on to a little bit of something. Even the faith with which you believe doesn't come from you. You understand that? It's a gift. Again, not just me saying that. It's what Scripture teaches very plainly. So in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are told, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your own, man. It's not, not, not doesn't matter how hard you try. I'm going to do better next time. I'm trying hard. How many times do you hear people saying that? How are you doing? How's it going? I'm trying, man. I'm trying to believe. I'm trying to do this. Right away, you know that they're in bondage. You know that they're not believing. Because even the faith with which you believe is a gift from God that no one may boast. It's not a work. Amen? It's all of God, all of grace. And sometimes this is hard to hear, isn't it? Because sheer grace just goes against the grain of our hearts. We always want something that we could do. There's always a little bit. Please, God, let me do something. That I could say that I did this. This is why you love me. No, there's no reason. There's no reason for him to love any of us. <laughs> and yet, amen? We've seen that. It's a gift. So it's the instrument of justification as we trust in, as we surrender our lives, as we truly believe in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. So, what have we learned so far? This one's going pretty fast, you know, like the introduction. Is it? Some of you guys are like, no, (laughs) it's not fast enough. Hurry up, preacher. Number one, righteousness, justification comes from outside of us. It is granted as a free gift. It's not gained. Number two, it's not a new way. It has always been this way. Only, only this way. Number three, we obtain it through faith, which itself is a gift. See how God is working in this? This is what Paul's saying. He's setting all this up. But most importantly, in all of this, when it comes to being righteous before God, when it comes to being justified, and again, next time we're going to really define that. I know that most of you know what that means. We're going to get much deeper into the doctrine of justification. But understand, most importantly, when it comes to this doctrine, when it comes to being made right before God, when it comes to God saying, not guilty, all your sins are pardoned, you're able to stand in my presence without being struck down because I see the righteousness of Christ in you. That's half of the sermon for next time anyway. Um, When it comes to that, it is the object of our faith that is all important. 
Who's the object of our faith? That faith that's given to us. It is Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul says here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Nothing we can do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to this justification. Whole Old Testament. The righteousness of God through faith. There's the instrument of our justification in Jesus Christ. He's the object. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is all. It's always about Jesus. It's Christ alone all the time. It's Jesus who actually saves you. Again, next time we'll see exactly how that takes place. But you know that all kinds of people have faith in all kinds of things. Everybody has faith in something or someone. Everybody's looking to something or someone. Everybody has an object of faith that they're looking to, to, for whatever, right? To deliver them, to bring happiness, to bring purpose, to give me understanding, if I can only believe. Now, more and more today, who's becoming, and this is kind of ironic, who's becoming the object of faith in the lives of people more and more? Huh? <laughs> self, who said self? Yeah, I mean, kind of really look into yourself, which, you know, you're kind of looking, you're supposed to be looking outside yourself to something but more and more we're being told, hey, just look to yourself. Be who you are. Be who you want to be. Do what you want to do as long as you're happy or as long as you're not hurting anybody else. But that doesn't even matter anymore. Just whatever you want to be, you go ahead and be. You are the God of your life. But that's another sermon for another time. But people do believe in something or someone else. People sincerely believe, don't they? They have a real faith, as real as it gets. I mean, sometimes I wish you, we had more faith, right? We believe like some of this unbelievers believe in the things that can't save them. I wish we believed like that in Christ all the time and had that faith and that dedication. There are true believers that are devoted, that give themselves over, that give their obedience to, that give their lives to, right? That they give them their possessions to. Think of the major world religions. There's an object of faith for the for the Muslim, right? There's an object there that they're looking to Allah through the prophet. And they take it seriously, don't they? They're devout in their faith. Sometimes more devout than we are. They take it seriously. Again, but it's all kind of their works to try to get, get to, get, hopefully get to Allah, right? But they do what they have to do. And there's, there's, they're devout in that. Hindus, Buddhists, there's an object there for their faith. The Jews, New Age spirituality. Man, they, they love the stars and the earth. They're, they're devoted, man. They, they take their time. They're not ashamed. And they're out there more and more today. You see it. Go to the bookstore. You'll see all kinds of books on New Age spirituality, learning the stars, this and that, and the other thing, that whole, that whole realm there. The cults, deep devotion, people to a man or to a system, they give everything, they leave everything and give everything they have to follow that person or that system. But you see, it matters, it makes all the difference to what or who the object of your faith is. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's Jesus Christ alone. It's only Christ. It matters. Christ is the object of true faith. Everything else will lead to perdition. Everything else won't get you where you want to go. It's not going to get you where you hope to be at some place. It'll let you down in this life and especially for all eternity, right? Nothing else can satisfy. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the object of your faith is and what you're living for. It could be money. It could be whatever. It's like you know one of the idols. It's not going to get you, man, what you need. All the pleasures of this world? No. It makes a difference what the object of your faith is. In our world, and listen to this, man, especially today, people say that they have faith in Christ. And yet, they have a Christ who's a lot different than 
than the Christ of the Bible, right? You talk to people all the time, just like they say, yeah, I believe in the, that, 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 that shallow, non-believing faith, non-faithful faith that comes out. That people have a, have, a, have a Christ. You hear people all the time, oh, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus. But of course, Jesus loves everybody. Jesus just, he just affirms, he embraces, and he accepts. That's the loving God that he is. You should be more like Jesus. Instead, you're over there saying, if you don't believe in him, you're going to go to hell. Why would anybody go to hell? Why? He's a loving God who sent his loving son to, you know, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So why not? Remember, Michelle, your conversation with your friends. That's it. That's how it goes. And that's, you're finding that in the church. And this is what's so scary. I understand the faith thing a little bit more because you're kind of raised up in that way. But when it comes to this and you hear people saying that you're reading the same Bible and you read your Bible every day and you read about Jesus and you can come out with those conclusions, it's apparent that your heart hasn't been changed because you're not actually proclaiming what God does. You're making another Jesus up. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the object of your faith. You've made him up. Well, I think Jesus is. To me, Jesus. What? It's the word. This, he explains himself. He reveals himself. We need to look to the word to find out who Jesus is, what his demands are, and how we are to follow him. Oh, meek and mild Jesus, loving Jesus who turns the other cheek. Go read Matthew, Matthew 10. Go ahead, read Matthew 10. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword to divide households. Mothers against daughters, mother-in-laws against daughter-in-laws, because that's the gospel. And he demands, he demands our complete obedience to him and complete loyalty to him, even before our parents, even before our children, even before anybody else. But we don't want that kind of Jesus today, do we? We want the sweet Jesus, like, like, the, like the show. What's that movie? The, the Jesus Chosen? That kind of Jesus. You need a Jesus who reveals himself. Not a Jesus of their own making. That's not the object of true faith. And you need to point that out when you're talking to other professing Christians. When they get off track in that way, you can't just stand aside and say, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. You're going to say, wait, wait a minute. I love you, but here's what Jesus actually teaches about himself. Here's, here's what the gospel means. Here's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not just, well, if I'm obedient to Jesus, then I'm going to kind of get everything that I want. He's going to make this life easy for me. Listen, man, the more faithful you are to Jesus Christ, sometimes life gets harder and harder. It doesn't get easier when you follow Christ because you're told to sacrifice yourself. You're told to leave everything behind. You're told to count the cost of what it means to follow him. You're told to carry your cross. Take it up, man, and count that cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make everything sweet and easy. Now, you'll always have joy, no doubt. But our lives, you know, the more faithful you are, more, more times than not, the more difficult life becomes, doesn't it? Go ahead, be faithful in your job and say, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that and see what happens. Right? Be faithful in your family and say, no, I can't accept that kind of behavior. I love you, but I can't affirm that. See what happens. Too many Christians capitulate and say, oh, well, you know, my child is this way and I'm just going to love that child and accept the child. What can you do? Right? Christ is not the object of your faith. If you believe in the wrong thing, all the faith in the world cannot make you right before God. No matter how close. <laughs> all other forms of faith are misplaced 
They're wrong, no matter how sincere, no matter how devout, and no matter how active. People are very sincere. People make a strong case for what they believe in. And our tendency is to say, well, as long as you believe in that way. You know, that's another big thing in the world of Christianity. If you're just a good, strong believer in whatever you believe in, well, that's good. And God will see through that, and he'll, he'll make a way for that. That's not what the Bible teaches. I would love to be able to say it. I wouldn't love to be able to say it because the Bible doesn't. But, you know, that's the easy thing to say. As long as you're sincere and devout, God can make something out of that and you know, take the good out of that and give. Listen, man, the Bible doesn't teach that. All other forms of faith are misplaced and they're wrong no matter how sincere, no matter how devout, no matter how active you are. Jesus says this, John 14, 6, you know the passage. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. No other way. No other way to be justified. He's the object of our faith. That's it. In Acts chapter 4, and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else, nothing else. Your nice friend, you're the greatest person in the world. Whatever they're believing in, if Christ isn't the object of their faith, there is no salvation. And we say this because we love them. We say this because we don't want to see them go to hell. We say this because we want to see them come to Jesus Christ. But in today's day and age, if you disagree with somebody, well, then you're intolerant or you're too harsh or you're too mean or you don't understand me or on and on it goes. This is why we need to be tough. This is why we need to be strong on the word of God. There's one object of faith. Paul had faith. Who had more faith than Paul as a Jewish Pharisee? You know Paul's words. Who had more faith than him? But apart from Jesus Christ, he knew that it was worthless. Turn with me to Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Nobody had more faith, more accolades than Paul in what he truly, sincerely believed in. Right? When you like to be like that, so confident, so sure, so zealous for the faith, but he had the wrong object. He wasn't believing in the true God. Because he wasn't believing in Christ. So Philippians chapter 3, let's start at verse 4. Paul says this, again, familiar passages. Paul says, although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, for if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You see that? That's a faith. That's a strong faith that he has. And he is exercising that faith. But he's missing the object. He's missing the point. So after he's converted by Christ, he says this, and I love these verses. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So we've been talking about trying to get that righteousness of your own. That's what Paul was doing. Not a righteousness of his, of his own, but that um, that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Does that sound familiar? That's what we've been talking about all morning. Paul's bringing what he said in Romans over here to Philippians, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen and praise God. That's Paul saying this. And this is echoing what we just read in Romans 1, not having a righteousness of my own. He knows that's, that's such a temptation for us, but that comes apart from the law through faith in Christ. Okay, kid. Say, <laughs> like, all right, she's saying amen. That's the end of the introduction this morning. Listen, a righteousness, what we've learned this morning is a righteousness not in here. It's not in here. Get that. It's out there in him. It's in Jesus Christ alone. It's a righteousness that has always been in him and that will always be in him. There's not plan A, there's not plan B. It's a faith that is a gift and that's the instrument of our faith. It's not because of my faith that I'm saved. It's a faith that he grants us in him. It gives us the righteous status and that Jesus Christ is the object of true saving faith. Always, all the time, and there's no other way. Are you trusting in Christ this morning?